We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 41 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, April 16th, 2021. Happy Friday. Two weeks from today, we will know what went down in the first round of the 2021 NFL Draft. What will it be? What will the Washington football team, or is it the Washington Beacons, or is it the Washington Belters, or is it the Washington Wayfarers? Might it be First City Football Club, i.e. FC, FC. Whichever way you want to go, what will the NFL team based in Washington, D.C. have done in the first round of the draft? What will we be talking about two weeks from today? Will Washington have stood packed at number 19 overall and taken the best player available? Might Washington have traded down in the first round? Not a lot of talk about that. That is a possibility. Or will Washington have made a major move in the first round. Is our world about to be forever changed? The Trey Lance stuff isn't going away. A mock draft that came out on Thursday from a prominent NFL analyst mocked Washington trading up to take Lance. Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN on Thursday, he reported that, quote, they, as in Washington, want to find a quarterback of the future. They also want to make sure that guy is surrounded by talent. That means not mortgaging the future to land one, unless there's one that starts to slide a little in the first round that they like. In that situation, a source said, Washington would be willing to trade up to land one, even going into the top 10. Of course, the team would also be willing to trade up for several other players at different positions, such as tackle and linebacker, end quote. But my friends, you cannot escape 
this Trey Lance stuff. And so, coming up in just a bit on the show is a special guest, the radio voice of the North Dakota State Bison, Jeff Colhane. He knows Trey Lance, the quarterback, can speak to his strengths, can speak to the concerns, knows the Trey Lance story very well, knows Trey Lance, the person, well. Is Trey Lance truly worthy of this seismic move that people keep talking about Washington potentially making? What if it doesn't take a seismic move? What if Lance falls a bit? Does Washington make a more modest trade up? Everything you need to know about Trey Lance coming up in just a bit with Jeff Colhane. But of course, with the Washington ambassadors, it's never just about football, right? We've all come to know that over the years. And how about what went down on Thursday? Dan Snyder filing a motion in court against Bruce Allen. Danny filing a motion of discovery against Bruce. Danny versus Brucey is a thing. The Danny versus Brucifer is happening. Two guys who had been two peas in a pod are two peas in a pod no more. I will be diving headfirst into that momentarily. This, my friends, is an all-timer. This could end up making the ownership feud, Danny versus the three disgruntled minority owners, look like a pillow fight. Also on this podcast, I will be sounding off on terrible losses on Thursday night for the Capitals and Nationals. The Caps got ripped by the worst team in the NHL, the Buffalo Sabres. The Nationals got slammed by the Arizona Diamondbacks as the former Diamondback, Patrick Corbin, got shellacked again and Victor Robles may well have gotten benched. Yeah, at least the Caps are having a good season. Thursday night was just an off night. I told you prior to the start of the Nats season that I was worried about them. And those concerns have only been heightened by what's happened with the team so far this season. Nats have lost seven of their first 10 games. The last two losses by a combined score of 25-9. Uh, bad Thursday for the Orioles as well. Swept in a doubleheader against the Seattle Mariners. Some thoughts on that later in the pod. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So I have not talked about the intro song lately. I I wanted to update you on that. And the update basically is this. The turnaround continues. The turnaround in terms of the feedback to the intro song. I'd say over the last month or so, I've gone from receiving maybe a 50-50 split in terms of yay or nay on the intro song to now like 80-20 in favor. It really is remarkable. I don't know if people have just been beaten down and they're just like, well, I guess I have to accept this or what, but I'm getting like a lot of compliments about the intro song now. I got this tweet from Reza Molavi. Uh, you're not Reza from Wu-Tang, are you? Anyway, uh, he writes, thank you for the great show. Love the efficiency and to the point nature of the podcast. Thank you, Reza. Uh, music has been great from the start. Uh, email from Stephen. Love the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Stephen then requests I talk about DC United on the pod, but Stephen does say at the end of his email, P.S. Keep the song. Email from Seth Bischoff in Ohio. Love the podcast. The time it comes out is so convenient. Nice to wake up to something fresh off the presses. Yes, thank you, Seth. Glad you appreciate that. And as most of you listening, hopefully all of you listening know, this podcast out every weekday morning, Monday through Friday, by 5 a.m. Eastern. So it is waiting for you when you wake up. Anyway, Seth continues, as a victory lap for the theme song, you should track down the creator and have them on the podcast. I mean, I guess I could. I mean, the way I found the intro song was by going on YouTube and just searching for non-copyrighted music 
and just seeing which one was the best or, you know, which one sucked the least. I mean, that's, that's, that's how I picked a song. It wasn't some drawn out process. It wasn't like the Washington football teams, uh, searched for a new name where I sent out surveys and, you know, talked about the Washington ambassadors and the Washington beacons and the Washington wayfares. And, you know, what about if we do a soccer name? Washington Capital City Football Club, CCFC, Washington DC Football Club, DCFC. No, I didn't do all that. I didn't do all that. Okay. Maybe I should have, but no, uh, I just did a quick YouTube search and tried to sort through some songs and, See which one might not be so terrible. See, you never know where an aspect of a show may take you. That That is the beauty of doing something like this. So keep your thoughts coming. I always welcome them. And just like you never know where a particular aspect of a show may take you, you also never know where our football team may bring us next when it comes to things having nothing to do with football. Well, here's something that I know even Dan and Bruce can agree on. Commissions to real estate agents have been out of control for way too long. That has never sat right with one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland. He's doing something about it. What if I told you my guy, John G., with Real Broker, will sell your home for free? That's right, for free. John Grandland is changing the way that real estate is done in the DMV, and there is no catch. You still get high-level service. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you the right offer for your home, that which you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars that stay with you and don't go to the real estate agent. And then John helps you find the home of your dreams and you are good to go. Expansive services at the lowest commission possible, zero. There's no such thing as going lower than zero. This is revolutionary. John Grandland is changing the game. Find out what he can do for you. Find out what your home's value is. Go to johngsellsforfree.com. You heard that right. johngsellsforfree.com. Zero commission real estate, or better yet, Call John Grandland. He's a great guy, huge Washington football fan. Boy, does he have a thought on what Washington should do in the upcoming draft. But tell him you want what you heard about on the Al Galdi podcast. Zero commission sale of your home. The phone number, 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland, zero commission sale of your home. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. So in the long storied history of Washington football team dysfunction in the Dan Snyder era, we have had many feuds. We have had Dan versus Marty, Spurrier versus Vinny, Zorn versus Vinny, Dan versus Mike, Robert versus Mike, Robert versus Kyle, Robert versus Kirk, Robert versus Jay. Robert had a lot of feuds. Jay versus Bill, as in Callahan. Jay versus Bruce, and on and on and on we can go, right? But truthfully, and be honest right now, did you ever think that we would have Dan versus Bruce? Bruce Allen was Dan Snyder's guy. Bruce was Dan's binky, as I have called Bruce. It means you're close. Yes, Brucey, you and Dan were close. It felt for the longest time like Dan would never, ever fire Bruce. A hashtag campaign. Hashtag fire Bruce Allen. 
started late in the 2018 season, and Bruce ended up not only not being fired at the time, but having his duties expanded. (laughs) The exact opposite of the intent of the hashtag fire Bruce Allen campaign, at least initially, is what happened. Bruce was given a greater role in business operations. Now, Dan, of course, did eventually fire Bruce. It came at the end of a 2019 season in which their relationship seemed to sour. We had footage of the two walking by each other in the bowels of FedEx Field. Seemed odd. The two were seen with each other less and less. Dan was seen with Alex Smith more and more. And now we appear to know why Dan and Bruce were on the outs as the 2019 season went on. So let's set this up properly because it is complicated and can be confusing. So we begin with the Washington ownership turmoil that was just concluded, right? Dan Snyder buying out his three disgruntled minority investors, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith in a transaction finalized on April 2nd. The ugliest aspect of the ownership turmoil by far was this alleged smear campaign perpetrated on Dan Snyder. Dan filed a lawsuit last August accusing an online media company based in India, meaww.com, of accepting payment in exchanging for publishing defamatory rumors. And the publication of these rumors was a big part of that insane lead up to the publication of that initial Washington Post article that really broke the sexual harassment scandal. The initial Washington Post article was published on July 16th of last year. Rumblings of a major expose by the Post on Washington had been going on for a few days, but those rumblings over the course of two days in particular, July 15th and July 16th, got completely out of control, especially on Twitter. Among the rumors that were out there, Dan Snyder abuses drugs and alcohol. Dan Snyder bribed some NFL officials, some of whom had made $2 million off Dan, and Dan wasn't the only NFL owner who had paid league officials. Jay Gruden did drugs and participated in sex parties. (laughs) Washington pimped out cheerleaders to sweetholders. Jay Gruden and Capri Bibbs slept with the same Washington receptionist, prompting Jay to bench Bibbs in favor of Byron Marshall. And of course, it was a missed block by Marshall in that loss to the Houston Texans at FedEx Field, November 2018, that led to the Alex Smith gruesomely injured right leg. And then one more wild rumor that was out there last July. Somehow, the late convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein was involved in all of this. All of these things were out there last July. That initial Washington Post article gets published. And then all these wild rumors, none of which were in the Washington Post article, just kind of went away, just kind of floated away. Although Capri Bibbs did actually confirm uh, that he and Jay had slept with the same woman. So at least according to Capri, uh, that thing was true. All right. Jay has never addressed it, at least not publicly. So Danny filed this defamation lawsuit against the online media company based in India, M-E-A-W-W.com. And as many of you know, defamation lawsuits are not easy to win. As Dan Snyder would say, that's hard to do. You should Google that. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, thank you, Danny. So you would think that Danny felt like he had a pretty strong case in bringing forth 
this defamation lawsuit. And pretty clearly, too, Danny is furious, right? Because implicated as one of the benefactors in the alleged smear campaign against Dan Snyder was one of the disgruntled minority owners, Dwight Shaw. Dwight Shaw, at least according to Danny, was helping to fund this smear campaign against Danny. Bruce Allen's name then came up. It was in one of the court documents in Dan's defamation lawsuit against the online media company that we got this fascinating nugget, which was revealed by A.J. Perez of FrontOfficeSports.com. A.J. Perez, by the way, the very first guest on the Al Galdi podcast. A.J. reported this on February 22nd, reported that John A. Moog, who was the Baltimore-based financial consultant hired by the minority owners to facilitate the selling of their stakes in the team, had exchanged a number of phone calls and texts with Bruce Allen, and that the two were, quote, focused on negative publicity directed at Snyder, end quote. So that came out February 22nd. It was a bombshell to be sure, but we hadn't heard anything about it since then, until Thursday. On Thursday, Dan filed a motion of discovery against Bruce, seeking to go through his text messages and documents that allegedly were a part of this smear campaign against Dan. So Danny wants to thumb through all of Bruce's texts. You know, what kind of emojis does Bruce like? When Bruce writes LOL, does he capitalize the L, the O, and the L, or does he lowercase the L, the O, and the L? And on and on we will go in this discovery here, assuming it's allowed to go forward. But Dan's filing says that despite Bruce's, quote, prominent position and hands-on role in running the team during the time period discussed in many of these negative articles, respondent's name, i.e. Bruce, rarely, if ever, was mentioned in these articles and was completely absent from the defamatory articles at issues in the Indian Action, end quote. And Indian Action would be the online media company. Dan's filing also says that Bruce talked to John A. Moog on, quote, at least 87 separate phone calls lasting nearly 21 hours, end quote, between a period of January 9th, 2020 to November 18th, 2020. So that would be after Bruce got fired. Understand the timeline here. Dan's filing says that Bruce, in the six weeks leading up to the publication of the articles by MEAWW.com, spoke to Moog 21 times for four and a half hours, and that Moog had contact with various media outlets. And Dan's filing also says that Bruce texted website links and excerpts of negative news coverage of Dan to Moog. So yes, Bruce, apparently, you and this guy, John Moog, are close. It means you're close. Yes, exactly. Thank you. So there are still so many questions about all of this, i.e. the souring of the relationship between Dan and Bruce as that 2019 season went on. Was that simply about the football? Washington went 3-13 and that season and was a complete and utter mess? Or was that about Dan having an inkling that Bruce was turning on Dan? You know, so we, you know, there's still that to find out. There's a whole lot more in terms of what exactly went on here. Where this goes, we do not know. But that Dan has filed a motion of discovery against Bruce indicates that a whole lot more could be coming, i.e. substantial legal action from Dan against Bruce could be coming, right? The reason you file a discovery is to what? Discover. 
You want to find out more. You want to see exactly what we're dealing with here. We may just be getting started when it comes to Dan versus Bruce. It's amazing, isn't it? We just wrapped up Dan Snyder versus Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. And that was dramatic and ugly enough. And now we go from that feud right into this next feud. It's like in pro wrestling when you have a blood feud between two guys. And then right as that feud is ending, if you're a good booker, if you're a good storyline writer, right as that initial feud is ending, you inject someone else into the mix. So you have another feud to keep things going. Like after Ric Flair beat Ricky Steamboat at Wrestle War 89, Terry Funk attacking Ric Flair, leading to the classic Flair funk feud in 89 if you don't know what i'm talking about look it up you can google that you should google that yes you should danny thank you very much i would just throw out at you three things about all of this and it is just incredible right and it is so fitting isn't it that this dan bruce tandem not only winds up in divorce but winds up in court you know what i mean like this is just this is so fitting on so many levels and in so many ways so first of all i think we now can say this pretty confidently you know we don't know everything for sure for sure but assuming at least a good chunk of this is true from Danny's side Bruce was a part of a failed coup of Danny how about that I mean how about that that Bruce and these minority investors were trying to overthrow the Danny like a dictator whose underlings turn on him and try to unseat him That apparently is what happened here, that Bruce was on the side of the minority investors and was working with them to get Danny out of there, right? That would have been the purpose of the smear campaign, to make Danny look so bad, to make the culture look so awful that Danny gets ousted as owner and the minority investors can step up their investments overtake the franchise. Maybe Bruce becomes a part of the ownership group, but at the very least, Bruce is protected. Bruce is a part of the operation moving forward. Remember what has been said about Bruce for years, right? He is a politician. People have said this over and over and over and over again. So when the going gets rough on one side, Bruce will jump to the other side. And apparently that's what happened here. Bruce went from being Dan's binky to turning on Danny and trying to be a part of a coup, what ended up being a failed coup of Danny. So that brings me to another point here. Dan's minority investors turned on him. Bruce turned on Danny at some point exactly when we're not sure. But all of this stuff happened and yet still Danny won. Does this not make Danny coming out of all this as more of a majority owner look even more impressive? Remember, Danny bought out the minority investors and became not just more of a majority owner over the last few weeks. He's at 81% ownership now, and the rest of the team is owned by other members of Dan's family. His sister, Michelle, is at 12.6% ownership. Uh, Their mom, Arlette Snyder, is at 6.5% ownership. But Danny came out of this not just more powerful, but he came out of this having bought out the minority investors at a discount. Don't forget that. $875 million with a $450 million debt waiver. And all of this got unanimously approved by NFL owners this past March 31st at the annual league meeting. The reporting was that the vote ended up being 32-0. The owners empowered Danny to become more powerful. So all of this is working against Danny to say nothing of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. And he still emerges more powerful. That's something else. I mean, that, that that further punctuates the way Dan Snyder emerged from this ownership turmoil. I would say this too. And man, it's it's hard to ever say that Danny's a sympathetic figure, okay? It is. But let me say this too. 
if everything that Dan is saying here is correct, and all of these rumors are false, are fake news, never happened, and that Dwight Shaw helped to fund this smear campaign, and that Bruce Allen worked in concert, was in cahoots with this guy, John Moog, to proliferate this smear campaign. I mean, that is wrong, okay? That is dirty pool. I mean, whatever you want to say about Danny, that's some pretty nasty stuff that was done against him. If, in fact, all of this stuff was done against him and all of this stuff that's been out there is totally false, okay? I'm not telling you to feel sorry for Danny or lose sleep over this for Danny, but let's be honest about this. Those are some real dirty tactics. I mean, that's about as low as you can go fabricating a bunch of ugly rumors, especially in this current environment where, you know, you're putting out stuff of Dan was pimping out cheerleaders to sweet holders. I mean, Dan was involved with Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, come on, that is next level stuff in terms of getting down and dirty. And yet apparently, at least according to Team Danny, that's what happened here. You know, I've said this about this whole ownership turmoil. This is not good versus bad. This is bad versus worse. And it's just a question of who's the bad and who's the worse in all this. You know, with this Dan Bruce thing, I mean, you tell me, who's the baby face and who's the heel? To go back to a pro wrestling metaphor, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy in all this? Again, it's bad versus worse. And I'll leave you with this final thought. And again, I'm not telling you to feel sorry for the Danny, okay? The guy is worth multiple billions of dollars. He just became even more powerful even as a sexual harassment investigation supposedly is still going on. But do you ever think about the existence that must be for Dan Snyder? I mean, what a lonely existence it must be, you know? I mean, I know he's worth all this money. He does have a family. He's got a wife and kids and all that stuff. But here you have a guy. He's he's filthy rich. He's an NFL owner. And yet he is like universally reviled. He might be the least popular person right now in all of sports. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. That's a possibility. You know, I don't know how you determine that, but he's on the short list of the most unpopular people in sports. And certainly in the history of DC sports, to me, he's number one. And I'm not even sure who you would argue is in contention for that beyond Danny. But so you have that with him. And now you have very clearly all of these people having turned on him. These people who were supposed to be his buddies, supposed to be his pals, his three minority investors. You know, one of the things that's been said is that Dan Snyder idolized Fred Smith. John Keim, Washington football team insider for ESPN, had a piece that came out last July about the dynamics of Washington's ownership group. I'll read you a quick portion. Quote, one source said Snyder almost idolized Smith, especially for his business acumen and how he built FedEx. As one person said, this had to sting Snyder, end quote. And the this that's being referred to is what happened last July. Remember, it was Fred Smith who ignited the name controversy. Last July 2nd, FedEx, for which Fred Smith is the chairman, president, chief executive officer, and founder, announced, quote, we have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they changed the team name, end quote. That is what ignited the name change. FedEx putting out that statement and the aftermath of that was a 10-ton snowball that was rolling downhill at about 100 miles per hour. So these minority owners turn on Danny. Now very clearly, Bruce Allen ended up turning 
on Danny. Although, again, was that after Danny turned on Bruce and firing Bruce? We do not know. But again, in 2019, before Bruce got fired, the Dan-Bruce relationship very clearly was souring. They were on the outs with each other. Why was that? Did Dan know that Bruce was turning on Danny? Did Dan know that Bruce was in cahoots with the minority investors trying to overthrow Danny, trying to engineer a coup of the Danny? We don't know. Still a lot we don't know. But think about the loan. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed existence that must be for Danny. These people who are supposed to be his partners, his pals, his teammates, his buddies, his friends, and they all end up turning on him. You know, he is universally disliked. His friends all turn against him. I bet at times it's rather lonely being the Danny, but this is something else. Dan versus Bruce, a battle that was unthinkable not long ago is now very much in our midst, continuing a tradition with the Washington football team under Dan Snyder, unlike any other. We have another feud to add to our list, and this one may well end up topping them all. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. We now are inside of two weeks until the 2021 NFL Draft, and the talk of the Washington football team trading up for North Dakota State quarterback Trey Lance is not going away. So this really, truly got going on April 7th when former NFL executive Michael Lombardi in an installment of his podcast, The GM Shuffle, said the following, quote, I think Washington is going to be the next team to unload all their picks to try to get a quarterback. I think they love Lance. I don't think I know Washington loves Lance. 
end quote. Then on Thursday, former Washington general manager Charlie Casserly put out his mock draft 2.0 for NFL.com and had Washington trading up from number 19 overall in the first round to take Trey Lance. Although interestingly, Charlie had Washington trading up from 19 to 14 to take Trey Lance. Not say 19 to number four, number 14. What if the Washington football team makes the big trade up for Trey Lance? What if the plan is to draft Lance and let him sit behind Ryan Fitzpatrick for a season? What would Washington be getting in Lance? Is Lance worthy of the massive cost that would be required to go from number 19 to number four or even a later spot in the top 10 to take Lance. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, a man who knows Trey Lance well. He is the radio voice of the North Dakota State Bison, also hosts a radio show on Bison 1660 in Fargo. He is Jeff Colhane. Jeff, it's great to have you on, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, and it's an exciting time around here. You know, North Dakota State University, an FCS program, a dominant FCS program, and we've been fortunate to have a really strong string of quarterbacks through uh, NDSU football. Five years ago, we did this with Carson Wentz, thought it would never happen again, and here we are talking about Trey Lance. It really is something, and it's a credit to the North Dakota State football program. I guess let's just start with this. Generally speaking, what will the team that drafts Trey Lance be getting in Trey Lance? Well, they're going to get a, a great football player and an even better person. Um, you know, a lot of times you, you wonder, Al, a uh, young player, inexperienced, maturity, right, questions there. I can promise you there are no issues with maturity or doing what needs to be done at the next level from an off-the-field and um, preparation standpoint. Uh, Trey Lance is a very uh, faith-based, faith-driven individual overall, and uh, great parents, uh, Carlton, who spent some time, a, a cup of coffee in the NFL and then the CFL as well, his mother, Angie, they are great people. He's a young guy. Experience is obviously the factor, Al. But I can tell you this, the guy loves football. He wants to be great in the National Football League. And to me, he checks all the boxes physically with what he can do with his arm strength, uh, what he does running the football and moving around and, and creating opportunities in the pocket. But also the other side of it with the quarterback position, as we all know, He's got to make, you know, split-second decisions and put the ball on the money and get the offense in the right plays and right position. Um, his time here, short time here at NDSU, has helped prepare him to do that. So with those physical traits, I mean, there is the size, there is the speed, there is the arm. Is there one attribute or characteristic that stands out the most about Trey Lance? I think he's a total package. I mean, the, the ball explodes out of his hand. Arm strength is not an issue. He can make every throw you want to make. Uh, I would say he needs to continue to improve on his deep throws. We've seen him, uh, you know, as far as accuracy goes, he's got so much arm strength. He, he overthrows and has overthrown receivers at times. I, I think that's something certainly that can be tweaked and fixed uh, and, and worked on and adjusted, right, as well. But he's not a run-first guy. I think a lot in the NFL, the big question people want to ask is, Hey, is he going to stand in the pocket, deliver the football? Is he going to extend the play a la Patrick Mahomes? Or is he going to be a one-read guy and take off and run with it? It's not who he is. Does he need more time to continue to mature in that category? Absolutely. He's by no means a finished product. But he's not a run-first guy. He's a guy that has 
the the feel for the game to understand, hey, here's where I need to move around the pocket. I want to keep uh, the, the play alive. But also when asked upon, he has got the athleticism and the speed to make big plays happen with his legs. And I feel like that's where the NFL game is trending at the quarterback spot. Yeah, I think you're totally right about that. So Lance played for North Dakota State for essentially just one season, 2019, but it was a sensational season. I wonder if you could speak to that. How special was that season? What was it like calling North Dakota State games that season? Yeah, it was it was really special. And and just some background from our perspective, Al, we were coming off of an unbeaten season in 2018 where we had a quarterback in Easton Stick that got drafted in the fifth round by the Los Angeles Chargers. And he, he came out of NDSU as the all-time winningest quarterback in the history of FCS college football with a 49-3 and record over his, his four seasons uh, running the show here at NDSU. We knew that Trey Lance was, was special. We knew he was really good. We just, he didn't know how good he was going to be. And he came out, he had a coming out party at Target Field. Uh, we had a fun uh, opening weekend there, the home of the Minnesota Twins, and played a college football game in front of 35,000 fans where he accounted for five touchdowns in his very first start as a redshirt freshman in 2019. And it just kept building from there. He just kept topping himself. You were waiting for the freshman mistakes, right? You were waiting for a game here or there where maybe NDSU would have to pick up Trey. It wasn't the case. Was he dominant in every single game? No, he wasn't. There were games where you could look at his passing numbers, didn't jump off the page at you. But he always gave NDSU a chance to win, led them to a 16-0 record, his national championship performance uh, with his legs was one for the ages. And a guy that was uh, named the Walter Payton Award winner, the first freshman to win that award at our level, and the Jerry Rice Award winner, obviously, is a top freshman. So it was a special season, and he just kept stacking up, uh, Al, great performances, one after the other, and, and made some highlights, real plays uh, in the uh, in the process as well. Yeah, to that end, for the person listening who has never seen Trey Lance play, what's a good game or highlight to seek out on YouTube? Oh man, yeah, there's there's a lot of them. I, I would, I mean, you could go back to his first start uh, at at Target Field and just watch him. It was against certainly a lesser opponent in competition um, in Butler out of the Pioneer Football League, but you just see the arm strength. You see the accuracy, you see the speed on a long 67-yard touchdown run where he weaves his way from one side of the field to the other and down the near sideline. Um, as far as his passing acumen goes, I think you can watch every game. Uh, he makes the, all different kinds of throws, Al. He, he can put the ball on the money. Uh, I mean, zero interceptions in that 2019 season as a 19-year-old redshirt freshman. I don't care what level you're playing at. It's absolutely un, unheard of. And so he can fit passes into tight windows. He has great touch on the football, throwing it over the top and, and layering, layering throws over multiple defenders and has the arm to throw the deep ball as well. You know, I would go to the Montana State game in the semifinals in 2019. He threw a 70-yard touchdown pass down the far sideline to Christian Watson, who's also another NFL-caliber prospect, a wide receiver in the second quarter, and then go to his third quarter, 70-plus yard touchdown pass. He, he, he was able to move to his left, had a free rusher coming, got away from that guy, eluded another defender, rolled out to his right, and threw a, a nice touch pass down the near sideline 
to Demetri Williams, a running back for a 77-yard touchdown throw in a semifinal playoff game. So those are a couple of examples. But, man, if you got time, just roll through the highlights. There are big plays after big plays. I love it. I love it. We're talking Trey Lance with the radio voice of the North Dakota State Bison. Jeff Colhane. So Lance has the spectacular 2019 and then comes 2020 during which Lance plays in just the one game. And that's the only game that NDSU ends up playing in the fall of 2020 until the season gets restarted this past February. And I know Lance was rather mixed in that game. What is the right way of framing that game? What exactly did go down this past fall from North Dakota State football? So a lot of people look at it, Al, and they say that was a Trey Lance showcase. Well, that wasn't the case from NDSU's perspective. It's been a weird year. I think I can say that, right? It's been a bizarre time for everybody. You know, we're still playing football right now as we speak. We are playing regular season games in the FCS that count in the win-loss column. We've got a rivalry game on Saturday the 17th against South Dakota State. It's two versus four in the country. It's a huge game. Playoffs are coming up. So what was going on in the fall with the FCS and specifically with NDSU's football program, as things were changing when we found out we weren't going to play in the fall, uh, Matt Edge, the head football coach here at North Dakota State, he realized the best way to get the most practice time possible was to play a game. Without the NCAA had set up their rules, uh, NDSU could get essentially another fall camp in September into early October with 30-plus packages. That's why the game was played. It was used as a way to get more practice time, more development for some of the younger players, knowing that this was going to be a fall unlike any other with the pandemic and not being able to play uh, multiple games. So uh, a unique feel, obviously, with the one game. Only parents and, and family were allowed. There were about 400 people, along with scouts from nearly every team from the National Football League. Uh, it, yeah, it was, it was a bizarre vibe. It was, it was kind of more like a scrimmage feel. You, you don't have the same type of energy and intensity around the game. And I think that showed in the way that, that both teams played. And, yeah, and Trey didn't have his best game, but he still accounted for, I believe, four touchdowns. He had a couple of rushing touchdowns, a couple of passing touchdowns, a 53-yard touchdown run against Central Arkansas, who was a top-15 team in the FCS. So, um, yeah, not, not a perfect game, but I don't think that game should be any sort of indicator of whether or not you should take Trey Lance in the NFL draft. You mentioned the biggest concern with Lance, and that is just the lack of a sample size. Do you view Trey Lance as one of these rookie quarterbacks who could hit the ground running in the NFL, or do you think the ideal scenario is for him to sit a year? Well, I think it's what you said right there. I think the ideal scenario, perfect situation would be, you know, he he, he has a year to learn, grow, understand the speed of the game, understand the business side of things in the NFL, and understand, you know, what it takes to – to, to learn and grow and play the quarterback game in the National Football League. And I, and I say that, Al, and none of us anticipated he would do what he did in 2019 in his one season we had him here at NDSU. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it couldn't be done, that he couldn't come in and, you know, play right away or step in midseason and take over the reins and help a team win games in the NFL because he's already done some amazingly spectacular things that we have witnessed with our own eyes here. But to answer your question, yes, I think in a perfect world scenario, Trey Lance gets a year, and then you, you lay it out and see how things look with how he's developed over a, over a season in the National Football League. It's interesting with Lance, he has a second pro day coming up on Monday the 19th. Why do you think that Trey decided to do a second pro day? 
I think it's because you don't have the individual meetings or workouts like we normally would have. You know, these guys, as you know, Al, they would they'd go to all these teams. They'd be, you know, Trey would be in uh, San Francisco. He'd be in Atlanta. He'd be in Denver, Detroit, maybe Washington, Minnesota. He'd take all these trips, and he'd have the individual time, the workout time, and, and the meeting time with the coaches and GMs and offensive coordinators. Because of the pandemic and the rules, he can't do that. So uh, the combine is different. They didn't really have the combine in a physical form. He wowed in his first pro day last month, I thought, uh, here in Fargo at the Fargo Dome. We saw Justin Fields do this just the other day at Ohio State. And so I think it's more of an opportunity for Trey Lance to be able to connect with teams that have the, the significant interest in him, you know, playing quarterback with their organization. He did not run a 40 at the first pro day. Do you think he'll run a 40 at the second pro day? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, I, I don't think so. You know, it's the 40 yard dash is always one that's really interesting. If you have a, a bad 40, all of a sudden, your, your draft stock could slip or, you know, people then start to question things about, um, you know, your, your skill set, your speed. I don't think he'll do it. Um, I, again, I could be wrong, but you watch the film. He's got plenty of speed. He's got all the speed he needs to elude defenders, to evade the rush, et cetera. Um, we'll, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what he does on Monday. How would you say Lance compares to Carson Wentz when he came out of North Dakota State? Well, you know, I think overall, I think, I think Trey is, is probably a faster player, probably the better athlete. Not by much though. I mean, Carson is a very impressive athlete. Carson, uh, a little bit taller, I would say, than Trey Lance. Um, I, I would say, you know, the arm strength is pretty comparable, I, I would think overall. You know, knowing that Carson Wentz was a fifth year senior as well when he came out. And Trey Lance is, is essentially a redshirt sophomore coming out into the, into the National Football League. So um, you, you've got a little bit of a difference in age. Uh, but as far as the physical attributes, I think you got a lot of similarities there, Al. But uh, as far as the mental attributes go and how these guys love the game, they process the game, both very you know faith-based, driven individuals as well, very mature individuals, um, I think that's very comparable also with how those two carry themselves off the field. So with Wentz, I mean, it obviously did not end well with Philadelphia, but he had some really good seasons for the Eagles. He certainly torched the Washington football team on multiple occasions. And, you know, he's young enough to where he could get his career back on track with Indianapolis. We also have seen here in Washington, another FCS guy, Taylor Heineke, have some success. Did a great job in a playoff loss against Tampa Bay this past season. Do you think NFL teams are becoming more open to FCS quarterbacks, should be becoming more open to FCS quarterbacks? I think so. I mean, I, you know, I think it's almost as well, Al, kind of a case-by-case basis, right? I mean, either you're good enough or you're not. And, you know, I think in the case of Trey Lance and Carson Wentz, physically they are good enough to play in the National Football League. I mean, Carson, but before the knee injury, he was the MVP of that 2017 season. And what he was doing in Philadelphia in his second year, uh, that was extremely impressive. And, and, you know, we hate the fact that he had to go through that. He's dealt with the injuries that he has. But I think he's in a really great situation now in Indy with Frank Reich, who was his offensive coordinator in that 2017 season in Philadelphia as well. Um, there are really good players in the FCS. I, I've had the chance, the opportunity, Al, to, to, to broadcast and be around uh, football programs at Power Five, Nebraska and West Virginia. And so I've seen, 
the Big 12. I've seen the AC, the SEC, the ACC, the Big 10, right? And so, yes, the FCS from a standpoint as a division as a whole is certainly not Power 5 or the FBS, but there's plenty of Power 5 level NFL talent in our division. You see it in recruiting. You see it in development in late bloomers. NDSU has had plenty of guys over the last five, six years that have gone on to the NFL and had success, have been drafted or undrafted free agents. How about Jeremy Chin down at Carolina, Southern Illinois FCS guy, James Robinson in Jacksonville, Illinois State FCS guy, just to name a few that connect with us from the Missouri Valley Football Conference. So I think at the quarterback position, yeah, base, you know, case by case basis, but there are guys that can definitely get it done. Final question. I appreciate your time so much. What kind of an offense does North Dakota State run? Yeah, it's it's very, very uh, pro-style. you got a little West Coast feel to it. The Bison will huddle. Uh, you'll see some up-tempo at times, but they put a lot of responsibility on the quarterbacks, and I think that's why you see these guys and you see the, the Wences, the Easton Sticks in, in Los Angeles, who is valued as a backup going into his third year in the NFL, and obviously Trey Lance. Um, it's, it's as close to, I think, what the NFL is looking for as you see around college football. And that includes the Power Five level. Uh, that includes all the, the blue blood big schools out there you think about when you think of the great players in college football. So, uh, another aspect of why I think Trey Lance has a great opportunity to, to really be a player and help somebody win. He's already gone through a lot of the things that NFL offensive coordinators are going to ask him to do with the mental side of the game and what they asked him to do pre-staff because they're doing that a lot of that here at NDSU. Excellent. Jeff Colhane, the radio voice of the North Dakota State Bison. Great perspective on Trey Lance. Really appreciate it, Jeff. All the best to you. Al, thanks for having me. Thanks. Great to be on. So if I ask you which night of the week is the worst night of the week, I'm pretty sure that your answer isn't Thursday night. Not that Thursday night is necessarily the best night of the week, but Thursday night isn't the worst night of the week. Thursday night is the prequel to the weekend. Thursday night is a huge going out night in college. Thursday night has been a big TV night for years. So many great shows have aired on Thursday nights over the years. Seinfeld, Friends, Cheers, Family Ties. You know, NBC revolutionized primetime TV with must-see TV on Thursday night. So I bring this up because for whatever reason right now, the Capitals have a problem on Thursday nights. The Caps lost again on Thursday night, a 5-2 loss to the NHL worst Buffalo Sabres at Capital One Arena. This marks a third consecutive Thursday night on which the Caps suffer a regulation loss. Thursday night, April 1st, an 8-4 loss at the New York Islanders. Thursday night, April 8th, a 4-2 loss to the Boston Bruins at Capital One Arena. And then this past Thursday night, again, 5-2 loss to the NHL worst Buffalo Sabres at Capital One Arena. The Sabres are awful. The Sabres with this win improved to 11-25-7. The Sabres with this win won in regulation for just the eighth time in 43 games this season. Buffalo never wins. And yet Buffalo won and at the Caps on Thursday night. The winning goaltender for Buffalo was this guy, Dustin Tokarski, who registered his first win, I'm not kidding when I say this, since December 12th, 2015. 
Yes, Dustin Tokarski had not registered an NHL win since December 12th, 2015 until this win at the Capitals on Thursday night. He'd been bouncing around the NHL and AHL these last few seasons. It was a terrible performance for the Caps. It was a terrible result for the Caps. Now look, you're entitled to a game like this every once in a while. The Caps have had a very good season. The Caps, even with this loss, are 28-12-4 on the year. It's very hard to complain about that. But this was a stunner because the Caps have beaten up on the Sabres throughout this season, and yet the Caps got beat up on on Thursday night. Vitek Vanacek was the Caps starting goaltender for the third time in four games. He was bad. He stopped just 17 of the 21 shots on goal that he faced. He got pulled in the second period in favor of Craig Anderson, who was in his age 39 season. Anderson, by the way, uh, stopped all eight of the shots on goal that he faced, but Vanacek struggled. Uh, he, per natural stat trick, gave up two goals on low danger shots. How about the Caps power play? Caps over the previous two games, six for nine on the power play. Caps on Thursday night, 0 for 3 on the power play. And the Caps gave up a shorty, gave up a shorthanded goal to Casey Middlestad, 542 into the second period for a 3-1 Sabres lead. This was awful. He scores with seconds left on a Caps power play on a wrister from the left circle on a breakout that started thanks to a misplay by defenseman Justin Schultz at the right point in the Caps offensive zone. Speaking of the Caps turning the puck over, uh, the Caps with 15 giveaways to the Sabres five on Thursday night. The Caps tripled up the Sabres in terms of giveaways on Thursday night. It was just a rough performance. It's a classic game you just throw out because it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense that something like this happened. Uh, there were a few bright spots. Uh, Anthony Mantha did score, scores the goal for a second time in as many games as a cap, had an even strength goal, 9.59 into the second period as he deposited the puck from the low slot off a great pass by defenseman John Carlson from the right circle. Carlson had a good game per natural stat trick, number one on the Caps in terms of five-on-five shot attempt percentage, uh, 71.43 for the game. And number two was another defenseman, Dmitry Orlov, at 68.75. And Orlov had an even-strength goal, 19.37 into the first period. Alex Ovechkin didn't register a point, but he was active. A game-high six shots on goal and a game-high 14 total shots. And as we talked about on Thursday's podcast, this was a milestone game for Nicholas Backstrom. Very special accomplishment. He played in the 1,000th regular season game of his career joined Ovechkin as the only Caps to reach that mark. But, you know, in line with how this night went, Backstrom committed two penalties. Uh, had a first period interference penalty, had a third period cross-checking penalty, although uh, he did have a secondary assisted go seven and one on face-offs. Now, the New York Islanders did lose on Thursday night. Lost at the Boston Bruins 4-1, so that was good news. The Pittsburgh Penguins lost two, but they lost in a shootout, so they picked up a point. Penns lost at home to the Philadelphia Flyers 2-1 in a shootout. So the Caps are still alone atop the East Division at 60 points, still two points ahead of the Islanders, now just three points ahead of the Pens and eight points ahead of the Bruins. Busy weekend for the Caps. They play both Saturday and Sunday at the Flyers Saturday afternoon at 1230, then at the Bruins Sunday at noon, and then comes a five-game stretch for the Caps that's probably going to decide the East Division. The five-game stretch begins next, wait for it, Thursday night, Three games at the Islanders, followed by two games against the Penguins. Caps are at the Islanders next Thursday night, April 22nd at 7. Then at the Islanders the following Saturday night at 7. Then home to the Islanders the following Tuesday night at 7. And then the Caps host the Penguins Thursday night, April 29th at 7. Saturday night, May 1st at 7. So five consecutive games 
against just two teams, the Islanders and the Penguins, three games against the Islanders. Those are going to be big. I mean, that's going to be like a mini playoff series for the Caps, April 22nd through the 27th. But yes, beware, game one of that stretch is on a Thursday night. So it was a bad Thursday night for the Capitals, and you could argue it was an even worse Thursday night for the Nationals, an 11-6 loss to the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park in game one of a four-game series. Nats fall to three and seven. How about the last four games now for the Nats in terms of runs allowed? Two, 14, zero, 11. You talk about Jekyll and Hyde. You talk about schizophrenic run prevention. That's what you've had with the Nationals here over these last four games. It was a really strange game on Thursday night. The score was 10-4 after one and a half innings. It felt like the game was going to take about eight hours uh, at the pace we were at over the first uh, inning and a half there. But thankfully, things did pick up. But it does end up being another Nationals loss. And there's no doubt what the headline topic is from this game. Patrick Corbin, a complete disaster on Thursday night. Corbin allows 10 runs, nine earned in two innings on three homers, three singles, four walks, and two hit by pitches. He recorded just one strikeout. He threw just 35 of his 63 pitches for strikes. The guy threw 63 pitches. He threw 35 strikes and 28 balls. How about that for a strikes to balls ratio? 35 to 28. That's terrible. And this is off what Corbin did in his regular season debut. Corbin, this past Saturday night, the 9-5 loss at the Los Angeles Dodgers, six runs in four and a third innings on six hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles, and three walks. At least he did have five strikeouts in that game, but that was another game in which he failed to throw strikes at a high clip. He threw 80 pitches in that game, just 48 of those 80 pitches went for strikes. This is concerning. You know, Patrick Corbin was one of many Nats who had a bad 2020, and the explanation for all these bad 2020s for Nationals players has been, oh, well, 2020, you know? I've heard that over and over and over again. It's like, oh, well, 2020, you know, COVID-19, shortened season, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yes, you're not wrong to bring that up clearly, but to just write everything off to, uh, 2020, COVID-19, like, no, you can't do that. Uh, there still was a major league season in 2020. It's not like it ended up being this complete joke of a season. The Dodgers won the World Series. They were the consensus best team in the sport. And a lot of Nats, didn't do well. And Corbin was among them. Patrick Corbin in 2020 had a 466 ERA over 11 starts. He gave up the most hits of any pitcher in the majors at 85. His strikeout rate plummeted. His velocity plummeted. His hard hit percentage allowed per stat cast shot up. Like there was a lot not to like. And so this is complete dismissal of 2020 for Corbin. I was like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't think he's that bad. But I don't think you can just say, well, 2020, like, you know, shrug it off and it doesn't mean anything. Like, well, what do we say now? Bad in start number one, even worse in start number two. And Corbin, during his post-game Zoom press conference late on Thursday night, doesn't have answers. He doesn't know what's wrong right now. This is the kind of thing where you almost wish the guy was hurt, so at least you'd have an explanation for what's happening here. There is no explanation right now. And when you combine this with what went down with Steven Strasburg in his most recent start... Two-thirds of your top three in your rotation have been wretched recently. That's not good. You know, thank God for Joe Ross. I mean, it's amazing we're saying that, but Joe Ross has been lights out so far this season. Where would the Nats be without him? And uh, we say that with the Nats, yes, being three and seven 
over the first 10 games. But it was a nightmare for Corbin on Thursday night. And everyone knew he needed to have a good outing. He's facing his former team. Nats are back home. Game one of a seven-game homestand. There was a lot to like about the spot that Corbin and the Nats were in. And it just was not good. Corbin gave up three runs in the top of the first on back-to-back one-out homers to Carson Kelly and Eduardo Escobar. Kelly, an opposite field shot to right. Escobar, a smash to left center. Corbin gave up a two-out five-pitch walk to Nick Ahmed, a two-out full-count six-pitch walk to Paven Smith, and a two-out RBI single by Wyatt Matheson. And Corbin then issued a two-out hit-by-pitch of Andrew Young to load the bases. Then came the inning from hell. Corbin allowing seven runs in the top of the second inning. You know, it's incredible. It was just two nights earlier that the Nats gave up nine runs in the fifth inning of that 14-3 loss at the St. Louis Cardinals. Here we were on Thursday night, and the Nats gave up seven runs in the second inning in an 11-6 loss against the Diamondbacks. That second inning, Corbin gives up a leadoff single to Tim LaCastro, a five-pitch walk to Carson Kelly, a single to Eduardo Escobar, a one-out run-scoring fielder's choice on an error by the Nats' second baseman, Josh Harrison, who did not cleanly field a hard-hit grounder. More on that coming up in a bit. There was a one-out bases-loaded full-count six-pitch walk of Paven Smith. There was a one-out bases-loaded hit-by-pitch of Wyatt Matheson on a one-two pitch. That was so painful. Where Corbin has got Matheson in put-away territory, ends up hitting him with the pitch, and then came the death blow. Corbin giving up a one-out opposite field grand slam to Andrew Young, the Diamondbacks' number eight batter to right field on a one-two pitch, okay? So let's check all the boxes here. Opposite field, grand slam by the D-backs number eight batter on a one-two pitch. It doesn't get much worse than that. And here was something interesting too with Corbin. He actually ended up leading off the bottom of the second as a batter. Davey Martinez pulled Corbin to begin the top of the third, but allowed Corbin to bat to begin the bottom of the second. I didn't understand that at all. Now, what's funny is Corbin got a hit. So I guess you could say it worked out for Davey. Corbin had a leadoff single, but he was pulled after the inning for the reliever Kyle Finnegan. I thought that was very strange by Davey Martinez. But this is so troubling right now with Patrick Corbin. Now, look, do I think he's this bad? No, I don't. I mean, you, you can't just erase from your mind how good he was in 2019, how much of a hero he ended up being that postseason with his work as a reliever. So like, no, do I think Corbin is shot? I I mean, I can't say that. He's not some guy who's, you know, in his late thirties and like, this is the end of the line for him. Patrick Corbin is only in his age 31 season. But remember, this is year three of a six-year, $140 million deal that he signed in December, 2018. Uh, This cannot be a situation where, uh, you know, now Corbin's like a number four, number five guy. Like, no, the Nats gave him a big money contract. This is only year three. You got three more years to go after this year with the Corbin contract, especially with Max Scherzer in a contract season. And who knows if he's back next year. Uh, Corbin needs to be one of the staples in your rotation for seasons to come. So they got to fix Patrick Corbin. There's really, there are no choices here. Like, no, the only option here is success. Okay. It's like the all-time great skit with Dave Chappelle and Wayne Brady, where Wayne Brady says to Dave Chappelle, this is not an option, mother bleepa. Okay, that's what you say to Patrick Corbin right now. You not getting right, that's not an option. Okay, you need to fix this. And that's got some work to do. They got a lot of work to do when it comes to Patrick Corbin. Now, I mentioned the Josh Harrison error. Not to say that this was the reason for Corbin's final line being as bad as it was. I mean, 10 runs, nine earned in two innings. That's really not something you see a lot of over the course of a season. But let's note this. Josh Harrison making that error in the top of the second inning, that was huge. 
The Diamondbacks' seven-run second includes Harrison misfielding a grounder on what ends up being a one-out run-scoring fielder's choice. Harrison, as the second baseman, did not cleanly field a hard-hit grounder by Nick Ahmed. If Harrison does cleanly field the grounder, that's very likely a double play for the second and third outs. So the inning could have gone in a much different way if Harrison is able to make that play. It was a hard-hit grounder, but you're a major league second baseman. That's a pick you got to make. He didn't make the pick. And we've talked about this, how the Nationals have been bad defensively for years. The Nats were the worst defensive team in baseball last season, if you go by the defensive run save metric. And so far this season, you know, Nats, I mean, already you're able to to pinpoint game in and game out, it feels like, especially recently, some major defensive miscues. There was another error by the Nats later in the game, the third baseman Starling Castro in the top of the sixth inning, a two-out throwing error, though it would have been nice for the first baseman, Josh Bell, to make the backhanded pick. Uh, Bell was unable to make that pick. It was not a very good throw by Castro, but a better defensive first baseman makes the catch. Bell unable to do that. You know, bad defense, sloppy play. We're seeing that here with the Nats over the course of this three and seven start to begin the season. These were my concerns with the Nationals going into this season. The Nats, to me, they're an older team. They're relying on 430-somethings in the rotation. They were a bad defensive team that got even worse in the offseason with the acquisitions of Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber. Those guys are good batters, we think, we hope. You know, they're trying to bounce back from bad 2020s. But even at their best as hitters, they are not good fielders, okay? So, like, these are things we knew could be problems, and already they are proving to be problems. It's early, no doubt, but, like, this is not the start that you wanted to see clearly. You're not getting like a bunch of encouraging signs when it comes to these preseason concerns for the Nationals. Uh, the bullpen was good on Thursday night. Nats, of course, have to lean heavily on the bullpen once again with the starter getting blown up. And the bullpen does deliver. Five Nats relievers combined to allow one run in seven innings. Kyle Finnegan tossed two scoreless innings. Luis Avilan, who got shelled in that 14-3 loss at the Cardinals on Tuesday night. Much better on Thursday night. I give him credit. Two scoreless and hitless innings. Wander Suero pitched again on Thursday night. Pitched for a seventh time in 10 games to begin this regular season. Boy, does Davey love to use himself some Suero. Suero likes the work, but, you know, we've seen Davey overuse relievers early in previous seasons. I just hope that's not happening with Suero here right now. But Suero did toss a perfect seventh. He's looked good so far. I give him credit. Uh, Daniel Hudson was the reliever who gave up a run, gave up a two-out solo homer to Paven Smith in the top of the eighth. Brad Hand tossed a scoreless ninth, though he did issue back-to-back, one-out, hit-by-pitches. Way too many free passes by the Nationals in this game. Nats pitchers as a whole issued seven walks and five hit-by-pitches. Not good. Not good at all in that regard. When it came to the Nationals' offense on Thursday night, look, Nats did score six runs, did have 11 hits, worked two walks. I mean, it's hard to complain a ton about the offense. What stood out, though, was Victor Robles. So once again, Davey had Victor Robles batting in the number nine spot, which I really cannot stand, okay? But Davey did this again. Robles struggled again. 0 for 2 with a strikeout, and then gets replaced. Got replaced by Andrew Stevenson to begin the top of the fifth. And after the game, Davey said this was not an injury situation where, you know, something was acting up on Robles and Davey felt like he had to pull Victor. No, uh, Davey didn't use the word benching, but I don't know. You tell me what this is. Robles has been struggling at the plate. Robles goes 0 for 2 with a strikeout. Robles gets replaced to begin the top of the fifth with Andrew Stevenson, who had batted in the bottom of the fourth 
as a pinch hitter. And Stevenson, who has looked good as a hitter in his brief time at the major league level over these last few seasons, looked good again on Thursday night. Began the top of the fifth inning as the Nats center fielder. Stevenson, a two-out single in the bottom of the eighth inning, had multiple plate appearances in which he hit the ball hard. Uh, offensively, though, Josh Harrison was again a stud. Man, has he been white hot since beginning his season of uh, the COVID-19 protocol absence there. Harrison on Thursday night, two for four with two RBI, had a two-out RBI single in the Nats' four-run first, a leadoff homer on a bomb to left field in the bottom of the sixth inning. Starling Castro, who had a rough series at the Cardinals, good night on Thursday night, one for three with a walk and two RBI, had a two-out two-run homer to center field on a one-two pitch to cap the Nats' four-run first and a two-out four-pitch walk in the bottom of the third. Josh Bell, one for four with a couple of RBI, had a one-out first-pitch RBI double in the Nats' four-run first and a one-out first-pitch RBI sack fly in the Nats' one-run seventh inning. And Trey Turner, who was in that leadoff spot with Victor Robles in the number nine spot, Trey had a couple of hits, two for five, one out single, bottom of the second, and a single in the Nats' one-run seventh inning. And Juan Soto in the number two spot, which, by the way, I love for Juan Soto. That, that's like one good thing about Davey doing this thing with Robles batting ninth, a pitcher batting eighth. It does bump up Soto to the two spot, which I think is the perfect spot for your best hitter. Uh, Juan Soto, two for five on Thursday night, one out single in the Nats' four-run first, and a one out single in the bottom of the ninth inning. But the Nats have got issues here. Got to fix the starting pitching. That is the foundation upon which the national success for the last decade, essentially, has been built. That is no secret. If you don't have your top three guys, especially, doing as we know they can, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, there is no realistic path to the Nats being a playoff team this year. Two out of the three are struggling right now. Strasburg and Corbin, the two have combined to get bombed in three starts to begin this season. Like I said, if not for Joe Ross having been excellent over his first two starts, where would the Nats be right now? Gotta fix Strasburg, gotta fix Corbin, gotta clean up the defense too, and you gotta get the likes of Robles going too. I think that's key. You want Victor Robles, a young player, a talented player, to be in a good place to be doing well. This is concerning him, first of all, being demoted all the way down to number nine. Davey can talk strategy all he wants. That's a demotion, Robles going from the one spot to the nine spot. And now Davey essentially benching Victor Robles and pulling him to begin the top of the fifth inning in favor of Andrew Stevenson on Thursday night. Game two for the Nats against the Diamondbacks Friday night at 7.05. Max Scherzer versus Taylor Widener. And boy, do the Nats need Max to be good. And before we send you flying into the weekend, do you want to talk some Orioles? It was a rough Thursday for them. A double header sweep at the hands of the Seattle Mariners at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. This ended up being a very odd series. The Orioles play four games over four days with Seattle, but via two double headers over three days. You had two rainouts in this series. You had games one and two in the series in a double header split on Tuesday. And then you had games three and four in the series in a double header sweep on Thursday afternoon, a 4-2 Orioles loss in game one, a 2-1 Orioles loss in game two. So the O's now five and eight on the season, two and eight since the season opening three game sweep at the Boston Red Sox. And as you probably can tell, given those final scores on Thursday, 4-2-2-1, the Orioles offense pretty much non-existent in the doubleheader sweep. Uh, the O's in the 4-2 and 2-1 losses go a combined seven for 47 with four walks. And how about this? Totaled just two at-bats over the two games with runners in scoring position. I know each game is only seven innings due to the doubleheader rules for this season again, but still two at-bats over two games with runners in scoring position. Trey Mancini hit a two-out two-run homer in the bottom of the first in game one, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And that was about it 
when it came to the Orioles offense. And, you know, as much as I think there's concern about the Orioles pitching, and there should be, uh, the Orioles offense really has been bad so far this year. Here is your Orioles team slash line through 13 games, okay? So batting average, on-base percentage, slugging percentage. And our old pal Steve Spurrier did such a great job on Thursday's podcast when it came to our Washington football team name conversation. Old Steve is back with us here. The OBC is going to help us out talking some Orioles here, okay? So the Orioles team batting average over 13 games, 218. Not very good. No, it's not. The Orioles team on base percentage over 13 games, 288. Not very good. No, it's not. And finally, the Orioles slugging percentage over 13 games, 353. Not very good. No, it's not. Uh, you can't spin that one. A 218 batting average, 288 on base percentage, 353 slugging percentage. The Orioles offense has been abysmal so far this season. When it came to the starting pitching in the series, no Orioles starter lasted for longer than five innings over the four games. Starting pitching really wasn't like terrible, but I mean, you know, you're really, you're really in a tough spot when no one's ever going longer than five innings. The game one loss on Thursday, Matt Harvey, two runs in four and two thirds innings. The game two loss on Thursday, Bruce Zimmerman, two runs in five innings, and he was lucky to allow two runs in five innings. The guy gave up two homers, four singles, and three walks. Next up for the O's, a five-game road trip, three-game series at the Texas Rangers, followed by a two-game series at the Miami Marlins. Game went at the Rangers, 8.05 on Friday night, Jorge Lopez versus Mike Fultonevich. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already. The weekend, always a good chance to catch up on anything you may have missed. Make sure you check out, if you haven't already, my conversation with Pro Football Focus Senior College Analyst Anthony Treesh. Great draft preview with him. You can find that chat on Monday's podcast, episode 37. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Ron Rivera, Don Ron, due to be speaking via Zoom press conference on Friday. So we will have a ton of Washington football team talk on Monday's podcast. In addition, of course, to all that goes down over the weekend for the Nats, Caps, Wizards, and O's. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. It means you're close.